Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being alive and the gift of having a hope in Jesus that transcends all worldly hope. We pray that as we gather as Christians today to study the third chapter of the book of Daniel, that you would be gracious to us, that you would open up our minds and hearts to receive the wisdom that you would have us learn, and that we would embody that wisdom in our life moving forward. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in. I'll read the first portion of Daniel 3. This is the fiery furnace chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits and whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. <laughs> Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue, and whoever does not shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men in before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, trigon, harp, drum, and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods, 
and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Okay, just a few notes before we dive into Daniel chapter three. You might have noticed a few refrains, one of them being the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This was repeated seven, eight times in the chapter, and the point is very, very clear. King Nebuchadnezzar is taking the initiative to erect this golden statue and have the people worship it. We can ask the question, did King Nebuchadnezzar learn his lesson from last chapter when he had the dream? Because we remember chapter two ended with Daniel cracking the code and telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream and Nebuchadnezzar trying to worship Daniel himself and saying, your God, O Daniel, is the true God. And we recall what that dream was about. It was about a statue with a golden head crushed by a stone that has clear references in the New Testament being the Lord Jesus. But nevertheless, Christological interpretation aside, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream where a gold statue, which was him, was utterly demolished. And so I think it's safe to say that King Nebuchadnezzar has not yet learned his lesson and that God has some more work to do with him. Now, one of the things I want to draw your attention to is the pomp and circumstance of the empire. It's not just that there is a statue, but you know who all has to be there? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers. I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar is really putting on a show. And how many instruments do we have? Like 14 instruments play in front of the statue. And so one of the things that we're going to see is the juxtaposition between the simplicity of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stand before the king with very few words, not presenting a defense, and all the pomp and circumstance of the empire, which clearly masks a deep insecurity and a falsity because King Nebuchadnezzar is not the true God. He is not the one worthy of all this worship. And so Nebuchadnezzar has basically issued a new law of the land. If you don't worship the statue that I've set up, you have to go straight to the furnace fire. Naturally, all people are motivated to worship the statue. However, there are certain Chaldeans in verse 8 who come forward to denounce the Jews, and specifically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, two things are going on here, I think. On the one hand, I think we have some basic jealousy. Remember how chapter two ended. Daniel is the hero who is the vessel of God to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. And as a favor, at the end of the chapter, Daniel asks, can we promote my three friends? And Nebuchadnezzar says, yes. And so these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are now in a place of authority, and people don't like it. But the second thing is there's clearly some racial prejudice happening. Remember, these are conquered people. How does the book of Daniel begin? It begins with Nebuchadnezzar sweeping in, conquering the king of Judah, and taking all the educated, rising intellectual stars back to his palace. But it doesn't change the fact that these are not Babylonians. These are Jews. They continue to worship the God of Israel, and they continue to remain faithful to the food laws. They are not 
meshing with the culture of Babylon as quickly as others would like, or perhaps not at all. And so there are some people who are out to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they are brought before the king. We're told in verse 13 that Nebuchadnezzar is in a furious rage. You'll see in my comments, I wrote, seems like the same old anger issues from chapter two. Um, this is not the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has been unrealistically angry uh, when people do not do his will. And he basically says, if you don't worship, you're going into the furnace. And in verse 15, he asks the question, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Friends, this is the question of the book. And by now, you and I should know the answer to this question. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, but it is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, what do they say? Do they try and say, hey, remember that time our friend Daniel uh, did you a favor? Do they appeal to the past? Absolutely not. Rather, almost foreshadowing the Sermon on the Mount, they let their yes be yes and their no be no. And they remain silent. You know, we don't need to present a defense before you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's like Jesus before Pilate, not opening his mouth. And all they say is this, if our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, that's great. You know, that's our hope. But if he will not, we're still not going to worship you, and we're not going to worship the golden statue that you've set up. And so I want to draw your attention to two things. One is the simplicity of their response, which reveals this deeper faith, this deeper security in God. They don't need to babble. They don't need to use many words. They basically say, we want God to deliver us. But at the end of the day, God is God and we will remain faithful, cost what it may. But the other thing that I want to point your attention to is how this would have been read when the book of Daniel came into its final form in the second century, and there was a different king. And it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, but Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was the Syrian king when the book of Maccabees was written. And Jews were once again being martyred for not worshiping the king. Or how this would have been read by first century Christians who were presented with the choice to burn incense before Caesar or to die. I want you to think about how they would have heard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's words and how they would have drawn strength from their witness in that moment. And so for both second century Jews and first century Jews, first century Christians, kind of those martyrs, they took courage and insight from this chapter to basically say the same thing. Our prayer is that God will deliver us. But if God does not deliver us, that's okay. We'll pay the price. We'll go to our death. But we will remain faithful to God rather than serve the golden statue. So that's an intro to the first half. Um, we're going to get to the fiery furnace in the second half. But I'll go ahead and pause there and to see what thoughts you have. That Daniel's not included. Yes, Daniel is absent from this chapter. It's just interesting. Yeah. It is. Where is Daniel? Mm -hmm. It's like, where's Waldo? Can't find him. <laughs> I'm frozen? No, it looks like Philip is. Philip is. 
ironic comment to make. Sure. Well, it, the ir irony is that evangelical supporters of Trump at the most recent meeting of Republicans had a gold statue of Trump. Yes. <laughs> the, <laughs> right. That's and right. I thought, do they, I mean, do they know what they're doing? Uh, anyway, I just was amused. Uh, no matter what, what your politics are, you got to admit that's kind of strange. Well, no, I, 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 yes. So I think, you know, the book of Daniel would, um, uh, that was very ironic. So whereas the book of Daniel would reveal the deep idolatry of all worldly rulers apart from God, Republican, Democrat, and everything in between, um, I will say about that golden statue that it wasn't very subtle and that we need to kind of remember that gold statues equal idolatry in scripture, that gold calves equal idolatry. So maybe we need to work on our idolatry being a little bit less obvious in the future. So <laughs> well, <laughs> that, think, that, that was kind of... Uh, you put it very nicely. In fact, we are idol makers. Yeah, John Calvin, um, you know, he, he was one of the great reformers. And he once said that the human heart is a factory for idols. That was exactly. his image of the heart, that it just produces idols. Um, and you know, certainly that's not the image of a heart renewed by grace. It's not the image of a heart operating out of its sense of belovedness, but rather uh, a heart kind of off on its own rebellious, isolated space. So um, very, very interesting. Well, do y'all want to go ahead and dive into the fiery furnace? Yes. portion all right i'll go ahead into a fiery furnace let's let's go ahead and, <laughs> let's go ahead let's dive into the fiery furnace metaphorically speaking okay verse 19 so nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage against shadrach meshach and abednego so filled with rage that his face was distorted he ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times more than customary and ordered the strongest guards and his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace so hot, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their tunics were not harmed. Not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, 
who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All right, this is such a great chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage, so much rage, so much so that his face was distorted. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, but one of the ways that it speaks about anger is that it distorts our countenance. And so that's just a little sub thread we could take on what anger does to us, but he is so mad it actually distorts his physical figure. Um, And so he heats up the furnace seven times hotter than usual and puts the strongest guards in charge. Basically, the point is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't stand a chance. They are outnumbered. They are powerless. They are not getting out of here alive unless God intervenes. And in fact, the furnace is so hot that these strong, big men who step up to throw them in, um, they don't even make it out alive getting so close to this fire. And so um, that is all to emphasize that this is the best Nebuchadnezzar has. This is the fullness of what worldly power can do. Um, And so Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he throws the men in and kind of takes a peek into the furnace And he's a little confused. And he says, I threw three men into the fire, but I see four men unbound. And I underline that word unbound because I think it is a significant word that at the heart of the God of Israel is freedom and liberty. What does God do but rescue the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery? What does God in Christ do but release us from the bondage of our sins? What God does, God is always doing. And so wherever God is, there is freedom. And this whole chapter raises the question of what does it mean to be free? Because the great irony here is that the people who are free are the ones who are willing to go into the fire. It is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the ones who obey the Most High God, who are free. And it is the king barking orders who is a slave to his own egotism and anger and need to be worshipped. Nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he sees the four men walking in the middle of the fire. Um, obviously that is a literal image. They are literally walking in the fire, but I also think that there is a great metaphor here for what it means to serve God faithfully. We might even ask, in what sense are we walking in the middle of the fire right now? Uh, How have Christians walked in the middle of fire throughout the centuries, especially in times of persecution and unrest? Um, What does it mean for us to walk faithfully in the middle of the fire? These are all conversations that we can have if you're interested. And then we have this fourth mysterious man 
whom Nebuchadnezzar thinks is an angel. He has the appearance of a god. But in Aramaic, a literal translation would be one with the appearance of the son of the gods. And so the fourth has the appearance of the son of the gods. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, we'll be introduced to the son of man. Who is this one with the appearance of the son of the gods? You can probably guess who I think it is, especially whenever we see that the son of the gods meets men at the heart of their suffering, in the moment of their desperation. What does it mean for God to make God's home with mortals, not at the point of peace, but rather at the moment that they enter the fire? If this is not to be read Christologically, I don't know what is. And so Nebuchadnezzar is curious. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you there? Do you remember me? Are you alive? And they say, yes. And he says, uh, okay, why don't you go ahead and climb out of the furnace? And so they do. And the fire has not touched their bodies at all. And so in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar, not for the first time, because we remember he went to the same dog and pony show in chapter two, he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar is back on the team of the God of Israel. He says something really interesting in verse 28. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies. We can't help but think that the apostle Paul had this image in mind when he penned the 12th chapter of the verse of the book of Romans, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in views of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Or consider what we say in Rite 1, Eucharistic Prayer A. We offer our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. And so the image of yielding up our bodies before it's in the Book of Common Prayer, before it's in Paul's letter to the Romans, it comes from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar in response to the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so the chapter ends with Nebuchadnezzar promoting these three men once again. And of course, he basically says, if anyone blasphemes the God of Israel, he shall be torn limb from limb. And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has a few things to learn about how this God of Israel worships, uh, that this God is not a bloodthirsty God who wants to tear people limb from limb if they refuse to worship him. But We've got time with Nebuchadnezzar. He's a work in progress like all of us. And so we'll get to track his unfolding journey again uh, next week. All right. So that is the story of the furnace. And I'm curious what you think and where this resonates with you and what, what it raises for you. Um, this just came to mind. I, I sat in on the class on Tuesday and never got it. And I, Julie, what, what is that hymn? When we walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Um, it yeah, comes. It's a, I think it's a, um, well, I don't know if we're thinking of the same one, but I know that there is a song that we used to sing at the well. Um, and, and I think that verse is also in Isaiah. Um, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Yeah. That's it. They will not overflow you. Overflow you. Yeah. Walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Yeah. 
That's from Isaiah. Uh huh. I can't remember 40 something or other, maybe. I can't remember exactly. Okay. I bet John could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, there, there are other, uh, both in, in, in modern day songs and, and also uh, other biblical places. Yeah. The idea of passing through the fire, not being harmed, is kind of a biblical archetype. Yeah. Doesn't happen just once. It's very powerful. I mean, I just, you know, I hadn't made that connection before. Well, let's let's go ahead and unpack it, right? Because it's it's powerful if we can access it in our life as an experience. And so um, I know what it's like to pass through the fire and not be burned, but it's really hard to articulate. Um, what does it mean to you? What are some life circumstances? Right, because if we interpret this literally, if you go stick your hand in fire, I'm pretty sure it's going to burn your hand pretty badly. And um, plus it says in scripture, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So we shouldn't try it. But what about like what's happening in our life now or things that have happened in your past? Have you ever gone into the fire only to emerge purified, more humble, more dependent, more reliant on God, more stripped of your egotism and um, open to the spirit's leading? I mean, does any of that resonate with y'all as a life experience? Well, I, I certainly had that feeling last year when, um, you know, I found out I had cancer and had to have chemotherapy surgery first and then chemotherapy and then radiation. And I was kind of like, well, God, what is, and then, and then on top of that, we had a pandemic, you know, we didn't know how this thing was spread. Um, I kind of freaked out. I did freak out. And thankfully, um, you know, my daughter was there. She said, look, you know, God's going to walk with you. And, um, you know, I had to trust that. I couldn't, I couldn't think outside of, I've, I've just got to get through this. You know, I want to get through this, this chemo. I want to get through this radiation and I don't want to get COVID. Those were, those were my goals. <laughs> and yeah. I realized that I had to trust God to get through that, that if I didn't, if I focused instead of on God, you know, just like the walking on the water, if I looked around me and saw everything that was happening, I was going to flounder and yeah. I was going to get overwhelmed, um, you know, emotionally. And so that's really what I did. And I, I'm glad I had that, you know, I'm glad somebody was there to kind of remind me and shake me and go, no, you know, don't, don't freak out. You, you can do this. You know, God's going to walk with you through this whole thing. Julie, I'm hearing two things. It's a really powerful testimony. One is that you had other people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the other is that you had God. And that's true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach wasn't in the furnace alone. He had Meshach and Abednego. He also wasn't there with just humans. There was one with the appearance of the son of the gods with him. And so as we talk about wading through really difficult times in our life, I think that that is instructive. That one is, you know, we need to know that the Lord is with us and to look for signs of God's presence. But second, we need other human beings with us. You know, God 
created us in God's image. And we believe in a Trinitarian God, a perfect society of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are wired to be in relationship with one another. And if we try to walk through the furnace with just myself and God, just me and Jesus, but I don't need any other Christians, I don't need any other support, not only are we being disobedient, but it's not going to work. We need people there with us too. Yeah, interesting point. Yeah, something that I don't think I, like Barbara said, I didn't understand that until this conversation. I mean, this story, the fiery furnace is like, you know, number one story in Sunday school, right? <laughs> Hang in there, be a good girl, you know, I mean, you know, you'll be all right, you know, but, but it was always that just believe. There wasn't in my training an experience of further connecting it to other parts of the Bible, uh, of the Bible or connecting it to the, the idea that, that it is in communion with other people that you walk through this fire. That was never made clear to me. And consequently, I chose many times to go off and do things by myself. And I know that I just did not do well. You know, I think that that, you know, there's a lot of other pressures that came on to say, no, keep your goals in mind, go be strong, you can do it. You know, there's a lot of other messages in our society that uh, challenge us to go go it alone, and we revere people that go it alone. And I, you know, I, I find this very interesting because I, I think this could have fundamentally changed my life. I would have made major difference choices. Yeah, and feeling challenged that God's going to take care of me. Well, you know. Martha, I appreciate that. And, and I want to just emphasize, um, you know, because what our culture values is often unconscious, right? We, our mind and bodies pick up messages the way a dark suit just picks up lint. You don't think about, it, you just absorb things. And we often take for granted the values that we receive from our culture, from our family of origin, and just from our personality. You know, some of us like this, some of us like that. But one of the things that is definitely celebrated is rugged individualism. I think of the White Snake song, Here I Go Again on My Own, you know, walking down the only road I've ever known. Y'all know that song? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to sing it because it'd be awful if you hear my singing voice. But I mean, I, I have memories of, you know, going to college and rolling down the windows and cranking that up full blast, just kind of celebrating just me in the road, right? I can do this on my own. And and of course, that's fine when you're 21 going, you know, going back for your last year of college or whatever. But as a life strategy, it's just not helpful for community and for life. For me, when a family member received a, a diagnosis of a serious mental illness, um, it just tanked uh, me. And then lo and behold, um, there were certain people and resources that um, helped to lift me up, but ultimately it's been, um, you know, God is the one who sustains me through this and keeps me somewhat resilient. And, you know, it's like, okay, you know, this is round 
3,252. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so it helps, I think his presence in my life helps to maintain at least a measure of that sustainability along with uh, some pretty key people who are just absolutely on deck and uh, with me through it, even though I'm dealing with it alone. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara, for that. I really appreciate that comment. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that about the Canadian government uh, sending out postcards. I do know that a few years ago that Great Britain actually created a, a new position called like a minister for loneliness or something like that, that this was actually addressed at the governmental level because uh, it's, it's not, I mean, you know, so one of the um, marks of the modern world is that we tend to differentiate all the disciplines, which is helpful. You know, geology is different from biology, which is different from physics and spirituality is different from sociology, which is different from psychology. And, you know, that kind of helps us master certain disciplines, but there's also a great flaw is that we divide up reality in artificial ways and we forget the ways that everything is connected. And what Britain realized was, okay, a bunch of lonely people, not good for the healthcare system, not good for the economy, not good. I mean, I mean, sure, they care about their people, but they were seeing the correlation between deep loneliness and isolation and the breakdown of certain aspects of society. And so they kind of addressed it with a, a minister for loneliness. Um, and, and it just, you know, it makes me realize that all of this is just so interconnected all these conversations we have, that they're all so interconnected and that every piece of our life impacts some other piece. Uh, and that even though we can isolate these conversations, that it just kind of all goes together in a sense. Well, and I think that also, um, you know, segues into the studies that people are doing about longevity in people in the world. And that certainly um, as we age, one, you know, one of the important factors is um, people who have friends and have more connections have tend to have longer uh, and better longevity. It does affect their health in many, many ways. So I think, um, you know, once again, that that's really important. That's how we were that's how we were made to be in, in community. Yeah. I'm having a really hard time expressing what I want to say. Uh, I think this is an extraordinarily important conversation. Um, and I, I, I guess what I'll start is, I've always assumed that John Christologically the fourth person in the furnace is our Lord. Uh, that Christ accompanies us no matter where we are. And I do believe that it's also the case that we who are members of his body do everything that we can to accompany those whom we know and love through the fiery furnace that they now face. It could be death, it could be this, it could be that, but there's not a one of us that does not come into life's pain head on at some point 
And I think each of you is correct, all of us are correct, saying that for someone to be there with us, with sympathy and love and care, is a hugely important thing. I just have been reaching out to former high school friends that I left behind, and it's amazing to me what the reaction is. Thank you so much. Uh, I didn't have any reason to call other than I wanted to cross over a gap in time. Um, that said, with the best company in the world, in the end, we will all face death. And what I believe is that, you know, that's the ultimate fiery furnace and Christ will be with us. And the, the more I think about the mystery of our faith in Christ, I come to, I go back again and again to the cross where he says, let this pass from me. He didn't have anybody. He didn't have anybody but God his father that was it and he said not mine but your will be done in utter trust that he's not alone and so i suppose i guess i want to say that at some point we all meet something that can't be fixed and i i live with the hope that beyond my inability there lies life and I just, this is why John, it's a brilliant choice of a Bible study. It's a brilliant choice, in my humble opinion, which is not humble, but it's a brilliant choice. <laughs> uh, I never kind of thought about this book like I'm thinking about it now. And you guys have really helped me get down to it. Um, so anyway, that's my contribution. I'm not sure that I made any sense, but... Oh, uh, you did. You did. I don't I, even feel the need to add a word to it. So I'm going to leave it. I thought you expressed yourself beautifully. Well, it, so I'm, I'm mindful. These such such great comments. And, um, you know, what this com conversation, for the most part, brings to mind for me is the story of the angel announcing the birth of our Lord in the gospel of Matthew chapter one, where they are told to name the child Emmanuel, which means God with us, that God's name is with us. That's, that is God's name, God's identity, God's chief characteristic, God with us. And whether or not life itself is a fire, I mean, because here's the deal. We have like wonderful moments of joy, comfort. We have seasons, especially all of us are privileged enough to live at a time where there is comfort and safety and everything, you know, with respect to Maslow's hierarchy is for the most part met. We get to take vacations. We get to work. We get to have fun. We get to play. And that's a unique human experience that most people throughout time have not gotten to experience. But it does raise a question, is life itself a fire because we all have our battles or will we all face fires? In a sense, that's not really important. What's important is the name of God, Emmanuel, God being with us in that fire. And Philip, what I love so much about your comment 
as I think you're right, and what you didn't quite say outright, but what I think um, I think is is true, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that even though we need other people to journey with, and we need to rely on people, that in a sense we don't get to share the experience of our death. That is something we must do alone, uh, and that you know, kind of human support, people can be with us, but they can't be with us fully. And we have to make that passage alone. But that your hope is that, you know, the appearance of one with the son of the gods, our Lord Jesus Christ, that that's where he shows up in all of his glory to usher us into the other side. And that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, what does it say? It says that the fire had no power over their bodies. What is resurrection, but the fire having no power over our body? Because what is resurrection? It's not a renewed spirit. It's a raised body. The fire has no power over your body. So there's just so much in this passage and y'all have really done a great job of bringing it out today. Just really well done. I have to close with a biographical note. Yeah. Well, One of the great privileges of my life is that I knew and was a good friend of Janani Lawum, who was the Archbishop of Uganda, whom General Amin killed. And he was seized and taken to Luzira prison, and he was beaten and asked to confess that he had been planning an insurrection, was gathering arms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Janani gave no answer except to pray. And he was praying, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I mean, in a rage, pulled a pistol out and shot him. There was nobody to help. There was nobody there. And I have no doubt that Janani was not alone. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're gonna add to that story Thank you for, for that. That's, uh, that's powerful. And I think it really puts flesh on this chapter. Really excellent work, everybody.